Welcome to Keeping It Israel, brought to you by First Century Foundations. This weekly podcast explores how your Christian faith connects to Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's your host, Executive Director of First Century Foundations, Jeff Feuders. Well, welcome to the podcast today. And my guest today, I'm very excited. My guest today is Professor Amnon Bentor. And we're going to be talking about how how archaeological discoveries at Hetzor are bringing the Bible to life. And so, Amnon, welcome. It's great to have you with us today. I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk to you. Well, let me just give a little bit of intro, a little bit of background. Uh, Amnon Bentor is Professor Emeritus at the Institute of Archaeology, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he worked at Hetzor as an area supervisor under Yegel Yadin during the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, since 1990, Professor Amnon has been director of the Seltz Foundation Hetzor Excavations in memory of Yegel Yadin. Professor Amnon is the editor of Hetzor 3 and 4 and the co-editor of Hetzor 5 through 7. He is the author of the recently published book, uh, Hetzor, Canaanite Metropolis, Israelite City. And uh, it's very, very exciting to be able to uh, to chat with you today, Amnon. Thank you very much for being with us. And before, uh, you know, we get into the, the technical stuff, I wonder, just share with us a little bit of history. What first made you interested in archaeology? I was uh, after the army, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, like most of us coming out of the army. And then uh, I was approached by a friend who was already Mm -hmm. studying archaeology, and he told me about a trip to the desert led by Yohanan Aaroni, a very well-known founder of the Israeli archaeology, geographical historian. He was looking for the road to Edom mentioned several times in the Bible. And they needed, there was a group of students, and they needed a few people to carry guns. At the time, it was not possible to walk to the country without any security. So I volunteered to carry a gun and go on this tour. And I went on this tour with uh, Yohanan Aroni, and I was also told there are beautiful students at Hatzor on this trip. So I joined, and ever since, I stayed in archaeology. Well, that is an amazing story, Amnon, and it's amazing how one of those kinds of experiences can really change the the course or the trajectory of your life. Now, I, I fell in love with the desert. You fell in love with the desert. And you have been involved in many digs outside of, of Tel Hetzor. Um, one of them was with a, a good friend of ours, Dan Bahat. Maybe share just a little bit about, about your time at Masada. There are two great sites in my life. One is Hatzor and the other one is Masada, no doubt. Danny and I uh, were in the same tent. Bed, two beds next to each other. So we spent many, many days, many, many months, many, many weeks, many, many nights together, talking, joking, arguing. We still do till this very day. I just saw him two days ago and we had a little discussion. So uh, Masada is a different story. Maybe some other time we shall talk about it. I am now preparing a tour of Masada with my grandson. 
But that's again a different story because he will be bar mitzvah and this is the thing that he wants to do. But let's go back to Hatzor. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Hatzor is truly an amazing site. I'm wondering as we kind of begin our conversation here, uh, how big is this site? What first took you there? And uh, for how long have you been involved now on this dig? Hatzor is by far the largest site in Israel. It is indeed the head of all those kingdoms. I will send you a picture. It's impossible just in, to describe it in words. But it is 200 acres large, composed of an Acropolis, an upper city, and a lower city. I'm talking about Canaanite Hatzor. Israelite Hatzor is much smaller, only 15 acres, because the lower city is no longer inhabited. It is an enormous site, much larger than any other site in the country. So this is, as far as the site is concerned, it is in the northern part of the country. It controls the route which leads from Egypt all the way up to Syria and to Babylon. I can send you a route there. It controls the road to Phoenicia. It is in a, situated next to water. It is a wonderful site, as far as sites go. It was first studied by John Garstang, who was at the time the director of the Anti British Mandate Antiquities Department. But he was working there for nearly two or three weeks, nothing much. Then Yadin came. Large-scale excavations started Large scale excavations started in 1955. 1955, 6, 7, and 8, Yadin worked with about hundreds of people every day in the upper city and in the lower city. Then I came in 1958 as a student under Yigal Yadin, and I was working in a small area which was uh, directed by Ruta Miran, another one of the founders of Israelite archaeology, very well known for her, stud her studies in pottery. So this is my introduction to field archaeology. 1958. Look at this. This is something like 60 years ago. I'm that old. Then I came back with Yadin in 1966 for one season looking for something. I do. We don't have time to discuss this. And then I started. He left the site to me in his will. He said that I should carry on. And I uh, came back to Chazor in uh, 1998. And I'm there still every year. And as if I, as long as I live, I still be there. Wow. Well, thank you. And uh, we want to learn everything that we can about it. I know that we don't have maybe time today to get into all of the detail that uh, that you possess. But tell us what was one of the most exciting uh, archaeological discoveries that that you have made at Hetzor. If you will allow me, before we go, before I try to answer your question, I would just like to tell you and your audience okay. uh, that there is Hatzor, and then there are all other sites. Sorry. There are no other sites but Hatzor. And I understand, or I guess, that you don't believe me. You just think that I'm just boasting. So I have three witnesses, which I think might interest you. Witness number one, if you allow me, is the Bible. 
And Joshua turned back at that time and took Hatzor and smote its king with the sword, for Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. Okay, so there is Hatzor, and then there are all those other sites. If we go a little bit further in the book of Judges, Yavin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, he is the king of Canaan, he lives at Hatzor. So much for the Bible. Let's go now, something very, very interesting, I think, is the situation in Canaan in the 14th century, during which time the Egyptians were ruling the country. And as I'm sure you know, when you write to the king, or when you appear before the king, there is a code, this is how you react, this is how you speak, this is how you look at him, this is, there, there are, you cannot do just whatever you like. So the kings of Canaan sent 215 letters to the Egyptian king. And uh, I call it sucking up to the king. The more you feel yourself as somebody, you don't have to suck up so much. The lower in the scale you are, you have, okay? So out of those 207 letters, I'll just give you one type of example. And this is his how do you end the letter? How do you finish? Okay, the king of Hatzor ends. I fall at the feet of the king, my lord. Period. That's it. The king of Megiddo. I prostrate myself at the feet of the king, my lord, and my son seven times and seven times. The king of Gezer. I indeed prostrate myself at the feet of the king, my son, my lord, my son again, the sun from the sky, seven times and seven times, seven times on the back and seven times on the stomach. Okay, so here you see who is number one and who is lower down the scale. So this is my witness number two. And my witness number three will be the archeology span of Hatzor. And this is how we come to your question. I'm sure, sorry I took so much time to answer your question, to which there is no answer. Because no. I will ask you the same. I will ask you the same. Which one of your children do you love the most? Impossible to answer. All of them are my children. All the discoveries That's are right. my children. And each and every one of them, each and every one of them adds something to, to, the, to the picture. There is not one which are one. If you ask me one year, I can say, well, the palace which we found is something unbelievable. Or when we find written documents, I'll tell you, this document is unbelievable. So it's a conglomerate. It's a group. It's many, many different finds which are important. Okay. Now to your question, you asked me directly about the conquest. Okay. Yes. Let me begin by saying that archaeology, in general, benefits from the misfortune of the ancient people. What are we talking about? What are we looking for? Jericho, the destruction. Masada, the destruction. Jerusalem, the destruction. Pompeii, the, 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 the destruction. We, we always benefit when we have a discussion. Destruction. In Hatzor, we have something, it will sound to some people very strange, when we say we have a beautiful destruction, 
a wonderful destruction. It is three meters high, three meters high, with ashes, with fallen mud bricks, with wood, with burning wood, whatever, what you want to see in the destruction, this is where we have it. So we have a huge destruction sometime at the later part of the 13th century. I guess you don't want to go into all the details of chronology here, but I can tell you that it is sometimes between, we date it, sometimes between 1240 and 1210 or maybe 12 BC. This is the date of the destruction based on carbon-14, based on history, based on Egyptian finds and our relationship with Egypt, which I just talked about when I read to you the letters which were sent. Egypt and Canaan are close allies, if you may say so, between somebody who conquers and somebody who is conquered. Uh, so we have an Egyptian inscription of a, a certain high uh, no officer or high vizier, if you wish, in the Egyptian government, who came to visit Hatsor and he left uh, a, 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 an astila at Hatsor. We know exactly when this person lived and when he was traveling and out the, around the area on missions which he sent by Ramses II. So when this man came to Hatsor, visited Hatsor and placed a monument at Hatsor, Hatsor must still have existed, must still have been an important city. He would not leave this in a city which is in ruin. I'm sorry if I'm getting, so stop me, if I'm getting into too many details. So this person were, was moving in the area around 1240, 1230. So Hatsor was destroyed afterwards. So this is just one clue uh, which we have. So this is the destruction of Hatsor, the date. We have the destruction. We have the date, and now comes the question, who did it? Who did this? And here we don't have any uh, royal inscription saying, I, king so-and-so, destroyed Hatsor, like we have in many other cities, like we have in many other places. So we don't know who destroyed Hatsor. So all we can go is by common sense. Who was around who could have done it? If we leave out some people from outer space, we are left with a very, very, very few possibles. One is the Egyptians. The Egyptians could have done it. Who was the king at the time? Ramses II. Now, all Egyptologists, and some of the most important Egyptologists, of and the one who, who specializes in the history of Ramses II, in whose days this must have happened, Professor Kenneth Kitchen and others, they tell us that it could not be the Egyptians. Ramses II was never in the region. He was never even close to Hatsor. When he was fighting the Hittites, he came back from there by sea. He wasn't there. He left many, many inscriptions in which he boasts, I conquered this, I conquered this, I conquered that. Not one does inscription mentions Hatsor. So Egypt is out. Babylon is out. The Hittites are out. Why? Because at the time they were at that time they were in decline. They couldn't have done it. Who was in the region? 
the Philistines, the sea people, were in the region. But they didn't do it because they were not exactly in the region. They were on the coast. And Hazor is inland. They were not interested in this part of the country. They have a very special kind of pottery, very, very closely related to Aegean pottery from where they came. So uh, not one shirt of Aegean pottery or of Philistine pottery was found among the millions of shirts that we have at Hazor. Nada. So they were not there. Who is left? Some people try to bring in modern concepts to antiquity. So they say the revolt of the masses, the revolt of the citizens of Hazor against the elite, against the king of Hazor. Impossible. It never happened. The citizens in antiquity never, never revolt against the king because the king is by the end, by, by grace of God. They don't rebel against the king. The, the brother of the king, yes. The general of the king, yes. But the people, no, they don't. In addition, you may ask, Hatzor was destroyed, the masses. If they did it, why did they leave? Why did, didn't they stay to enjoy the fact that they won? They had houses, they had families, they had fields. Why didn't they stay there? Why after the fall of Hatzor was it not inhabited for close to 150 years? So all these are out. Who is left? The only ones who have a tradition that this day, who did it? And those are the early Israelites I just read to you from the book of Joshua, chapter 10, verse 11. So as far as I am concerned, to have a, how do you call it, what is said usually in, in trial, they are guilty unless proven any, uh, beyond any doubt, that they are innocent. Now I'm asked by some, the Israelites, but this is too early for the Israelites. The Israelites, here again, I need the aid from the Egyptian. Egyptian King Merneftah, very well-known king of the late 13th century, mind you again of the date. Late 13th century, led his army against Israel against the land of Canaan. And he said, I conquered this, I conquered that, I conquered, and I conquered, I, I made the Israelite disappear. I annihilated the Israelites. And the kind of, uh, in his inscription, you see that the, those Israelites to whom he refers are not settled people. They are semi-nomads. They are moving around the region. They are in the process of settlement but they are not yet settlement. You can see it the way he depicts the Israelites. But this stela proves that some people, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 people, named by the Egyptian, Israel, were still around. Could they have done it on their own? Maybe, maybe not on their own, maybe joined with other nomads or semi-nomads. But don't ever belittle the possibility of nomads to do something. Look at the Arabs. The Arabs came to this part of the world in the 7th century AD and brought down the Byzantine Empire. Nomads from the desert, the early Muslims, who brought down the Roman Empire, 
if not some nomads and the barbarians coming out of nowhere. So it is very well possible. I'm sorry I take so long. You should cut me in the middle because I can go on and on and on and on. Well, that's quite all right. We, uh, I love to hear all of this. And um, I think that what, one of the things that you mentioned, you know, that I love how you do the process of elimination. And, you know, finally, the, the Israelite people are, are, are guilty. Love these connections to the biblical record. Now, there's another connection. You mentioned the destruction. And the Bible specifically tells us that Hetzor was destroyed by fire. Um, what are the, the signs, the discoveries that you made there at the site that make such a definitive connection to that type of, of destruction? First of all, I have a short answer to which I'll come back before, we, before this discussion here is over. And this is, come and see for yourself. How can I describe to you three meters of destruction involved in to which there is a lot of ashes, a lot of burnt wood, etc., etc. We see the destruction. It is on the walls. It is everywhere. Let me say one other thing. Not every city was destroyed by fire. Somewhere, somewhere not. And even in the book, it says, Hatzor alone was set by fire. No other sites were set on fire. That is not true. Other sites were also set on fire. But the fire of Hatzor is something really special. One other thing I will tell you, which is connected with the destruction of Hatzor, and this is the smashing of statues. I call it the sad fate of statues. All statues found in the last layer of the Canaanite Hatzor are deliberately mutilated. They are broken, the head is gone, and the hands are gone. This is what happens to statues when the city falls, except statues that the people of the inhabitants hid them and buried them in the ground so that it will, they will not be mutilated. But the destruction of statues, the cutting off the head, you can understand why cutting of the hands because they hold their symbols of power in their hands. So this is what you do when you conquer. Look what, the, what did the Americans do when they entered Baghdad? What did they do to Saddam Hussein? Huh? To the statue of Saddam Hussein? It was destroyed deliberately. This is what you do to statues. Look at what they did to Ceausescu. Look at what they did to, to Stalin and told them, you destroy the symbols of power. Now I read to you from the first book of Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. So the Israelites fought against the Philistines. Now we are talking about 1,000 years later than the conquest of Hatzor. Okay? After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Evan Ezer to Ashdod. Then they took it, brought it to the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. So they took the statue of the God of Israel, which is the Ark, and they set it up at the foot of their own God in Ashdod. When the Ashdodites arose, there was Dagon, the God of the Ashdod, fallen on his face before the Ark of Yahweh. 
So they raised up Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose the next morning, there was Dagon falling on his face before the ark of Yahweh. Dagon's head and both his hands were broken off upon the threshold. Only his trunk was left intact. So you see, what we have in Hatzor in the 13th century is what the Philistines or what the Israelites had 1,000 years later. This is what happens to statues when the city falls. This happened at Hatzor, and this happens in many other places. Sorry I'm talking too much. You should stop me. You don't do it. Well, I don't want to interrupt because um, it's also it's also good. Come and visit Hatzor. And even better, come and work with us. We are in the field every year in the month of July. You can stay with us for one week, for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Come and work with us. You have an open invitation. Well, Amnon, I personally would love to do that. And uh, right now from Canada, we can't travel to Israel, but we're hoping that that changes very soon. And uh, we... I know. Yes, but we certainly... Next year. Yeah, next year. We are not excavating. We are not excavating this year. That brings me maybe to my to my last question, because this is an ongoing dig. You are continuing to be involved with excavations there at Hetzor. And looking ahead, what what would be something that you're anticipating or hoping to find in this next round of excavations? It won't happen in one year. It will take several years because we are sitting on top of a huge palace. We already excavated a ceremonial palace on the Acropolis. And now we are sitting on top of the um, how shall I say it, uh, for the government, for uh, uh, administrative palace. It is huge, but its walls are preserved sometimes to two meters or sometimes to three meters. It will have an archive in it. I am sure of it. So this is the one we are looking at. and This is the one we are excavating. I don't know how many years it will take because we have it to take it slice by slice. But this is what we shall do. Wow. You can come and take part. Well, that sounds very exciting. And you know what? I might just do that. I might just come in 2022 during July. Although, you know, I've always stayed away from Israel in July because it's so hot. But uh, I guess if I was involved in something as exciting as this, I could probably put up with the heat for uh, for a week. <laughs> <laughs> Hundreds, hundreds of Americans and Europeans do it every year. We have been in the field now for 33 years. They do it. They all come home safe and sound. Nobody melted. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. If you're watching, listening, I know that uh, you've enjoyed this conversation. And uh, Amnon, thank you for being with us. It's been great to learn from your experience. And I do hope that we will have opportunity in future to, uh, to chat again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Israel. That meaningful name is mentioned more than 2,300 times in the Bible. 
It is from this land, nation, and people that Christianity emerged some 2,000 years ago. But since that time, Christianity has become mostly disconnected from Israel, and without an understanding of the Jewishness of Jesus and our Hebraic foundations, so much of the depth and meaning of the Bible is lost. First Century Foundations is committed to helping Christians reconnect and stay connected to Israel. We invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our TV programs and weekly video podcast, Keeping It Israel. Follow us on Facebook and our other social media platforms. Let's reconnect to Israel and stay connected. Find out more at firstcenturyfoundations.com.